Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I also would like to say Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers who are with us this morning, both in person and online. And uh, may the Lord grant you the wisdom and spiritual insight of Deborah and the strength and courage of Jael, who we will be studying this morning in the passage that we're going to be looking at. Um, as we begin to think about the message for this morning, I uh, want to tell you a little bit, uh, I want to tell you a story. Um, I don't know if this story is true, uh, but uh, the story is told that there was an oil well fire that took place at a well in Oklahoma. And the owner of the oil field, he sent for some expert oil well firefighters from Texas to come in order to put the fire out. But of course, it takes a while to get uh, from Texas to Oklahoma. And so while they were on their way, he called the local volunteer fire department from the tiny town nearby because he wanted to make sure that the fire didn't spread on, into the brush in the surrounding hills. And so he just wanted them to kind of, you know, keep the perimeter safe. And so he called for them to come. And this uh, particular well was kind of in a bowl surrounded by hills, and the road came over one of the hills. And uh, before long, the uh, tanker truck from the volunteer fire department came down the road, uh, toward the oil well fire, and uh, the oil crew had set up a perimeter around the fire, and this tanker truck just rolled right past the perimeter, rolled right up to the edge of the fire. Uh, by the way, um, David, you can move uh, one slide forward if you wish. Um, rolled right up to the edge of the fire, and the firemen jumped out of the truck, they quick hosed each other off, and then they put out the fire. And the owner of the oil field was tremendously impressed, tremendously gratified, and so he cut a check for $200,000, and he awarded it to that local volunteer fire department. And uh, as he is giving the check to the fire chief, the owner of the oil field says, Chief, what is your fire department going to use this money for? And the fire chief says, well, the very first thing we're going to do is get some new brakes on that truck. And uh, the reason I share this story is as I was approaching the passage that we are going to look at this morning, I felt a little bit like I was on a truck with no brakes rolling toward a fire. Because uh, this passage that we're looking at has... Uh, it's got some awkward things in it. It's got some pitfalls. It's got some unpopular ideas. And uh, I was scared 
Uh, but I also felt a sense of compulsion that uh, this was the passage the Holy Spirit was leading me to speak about today. And uh, so, um, pray for me. As, uh, as we enter an interesting field, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. All of it is given by your, your inspiration and is profitable for teaching and correction and rebuke and for instruction and in righteousness. And so I pray that this particular passage, you would guide my words as I speak this morning, that you would open the hearts of those who hear and grant them insight, and that what you want communicated would be communicated today. I pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, just one note, uh, parents, if you want to look ahead at chapter 4, verse 21, and decide whether or not your children are mature enough for this message, and uh, if you decide that they're not, uh, go ahead and feel free uh, to take them out. Well, we can begin in Judges chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 3. Those verses say, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. And these three verses set the context for the rest of what occurs in the passage, and it follows a common pattern that we see in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, we see a recurring pattern where the nation of Israel falls into sin, and as a result of their sin, God delivers them into, ha into the hands of wicked people. And then as they come under the oppression of the wicked people into whose hands they've been delivered as a judgment and as discipline. Uh, they um, cry out to the Lord for help. The Lord raises up a deliverer in order to free the people from the wicked people into whose hands they have fallen. And the wicked oppressors in the particular passage that we're looking at today are Canaanites. As it, said in verse, it says in verse 2, So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hagoyim. Now, during the course of human history, there have been some extremely wicked people in the world. And you don't have to think very hard to think of some of them. But among all the wicked people that there have been in the course of human history, the Canaanites were some of the worst of the worst. They were very much like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were so wicked that God sent down fire from heaven in order to wipe them out because their sins were so awful. And... Um, 
The Canaanites were very much like them. God had given them 400 years to repent. They had stubbornly refused. They had grown worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally, God said, I'm going to destroy the people of Canaan, just as I destroyed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But this time, I'm not going to send fire down from heaven. I'm going to send the people of Israel in order to destroy the people of Canaan. Now, what could make God so angry that he would destroy the people of Canaan? And we can, we can think of many things. We can think of, uh, we can think of theft, and, and we can think of murder, and, and we can think of rape, and we can think of human sacrifice. We can think of all manner of sins. But the very, very worst thing that the Canaanites did was they did not love God, their creator, with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all of the other sins of the people of Canaan were symptoms of this one sin that filled their heart. And as I think about that, that's a very sobering reminder for me. Because... I have not and I do not always, moment by moment, love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every time I fall into sin in my life, it's because I've turned away in choosing to sin rather than loving him above all things. And so I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Like the Canaanites, I deserve to be eradicated from the face of the earth because of my sins. And that's sobering. But as we think about the nation of Israel, we have a light of hope. Because the nation of Israel sinned against God. That's what we looked at here. And in spite of their sin, when they called upon God, God sent a deliverer in order to free them from the penalty of their sin. And of course, that sets up a pattern for what God has done for us. That when we were hopeless and helpless, when we were lost, God had mercy on us. And God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent Jesus Christ as our deliverer to bear the penalty that we could not bear and pay the debt that we could not pay and reconcile us to God. And even beyond salvation, we can look to God day by day when we are in need and call upon him to help us. And so our first principle from this passage, principles for living with the king, our first principle this morning, realize that you have a need and call upon the king for help. So if you are still lost in your sins, realize that you're a sinner 
Realize that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins. Call upon him to rescue you and restore you to fellowship with God and become a child of God through faith in him. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then moment by moment and day by day in your life, you can look to him. Recognize we are constantly in need. That we, we think we can take care of ourselves, but we can't. And so we come to him and we call upon him and we receive deliverance from him. And so the nation of Israel was in need and they called upon God and God raised up a deliverer for them. In verses 4 through 10, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon and I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. We could go to, actually, two slides. I skipped the slide. There we go. That's the one I want. Um, the prophetess Deborah was judging Israel at the time. And she was doing a good job. And my comments that I'm about to share are not intended as an attack on Deborah in particular or upon women in general, especially on Mother's Day. Uh, women are created in the image of God and they are equally valuable in his sight with men. And uh, God loves them just as much as he loves men. But the original readers of this passage would have recognized something as they read about this they would have recognized the fact that a woman was leading the nation at the time was an indication that Israel was under judgment. And this understanding is reflected in the words of Isaiah when he's prophesying about God's coming judgment over the nation of Israel in Isaiah 3.12. And in that passage... He says, as for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. 
And when Isaiah is sharing these words in Isaiah 3.12, he's not sharing some backward, Neanderthal, patriarchal, outdated opinion. He is sharing God's truth. In Judges chapter 4, the men of Israel had failed to provide godly leadership. And so God raised up a woman to shame them. And this failure is further illustrated when we come to Barak. Because God is raising up Barak to deliver Israel. And Barak does not step forward voluntarily. Instead, Deborah has to call for Barak. And when he receives the assignment, Barak refuses to complete the assignment unless Deborah comes with him. And so in verse 8, it says, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And so this actually follows another fairly typical pattern for the book of Judges. Sometime as we think about Judges, we think, you know, this is a book telling us how great the Judges of Israel were. And actually it's not. Uh, The book of Judges is very, very upfront about the flaws and failures of the Judges of Israel. And it highlights those flaws in order to illustrate something. It illustrates the fact that the nation of Israel needs a righteous king. The theme of the book of Judges is there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And like the people of Israel, we need a righteous king, and there is only one truly righteous king, the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords. And we pray that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And so as we look at this passage, our second principle for living with the righteous king is men don't be like Barak. Have the courage to provide the godly, gentle, loving, spiritual leadership that your family and your church and your nation need. Don't fall down on the job so that the ladies need to come around behind and pick up after you. So next we see that God delivered his people from their enemies. Verses 11 to 16 says, Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zaanayim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, 
not a man was left. And so we can note in verse 13 that Sisera was equipped with 900 iron chariots. And we can go forward to our next slide. And uh, it says in verse 13, So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Herosheth to the river Kishon. And so you can notice that Sisera gathered his chariots to the river Kishon. And this was strategically significant because chariots are best used in a relatively flat, relatively smooth place because then they can maneuver the best. And you can notice that um, Barak assembled his troops up on Mount Tabor. And this is for a strategic reason as well because chariots don't maneuver well on steep, rocky slopes. And so, uh, strategically speaking, the normal idea would be Barak would like to engage Sisera as high up the mountain as he could, which would give him the most strategic advantage. And Sisera would like to engage Barak as close to the valley as possible because that would give him the most strategic advantage. But in verse 14, Deborah told Barak to do something that seemed foolish. In verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And so it looked like bad advice. Basically, Deborah says, go engage Sisera in the valley. But God had something in mind. In uh, the next chapter, chapter 5, is basically a song about this battle that Deborah and Barak sing. And in the song, in chapter 5, verse 21, Deborah and Barak mentioned that the Kishon River overflowed its banks during the battle. What happens when a river overflows? It makes things muddy. And what happens when you have a wheeled vehicle in the mud? So I was talking with someone in the narthex this morning that was talking about uh, their tractor and their garden and uh, the problem of the wheeled vehicle in the mud. And uh, so what happened is uh, they went and engaged the chariots of Sisera in the valley and the chariots were stuck in the mud. And suddenly they weren't such fearsome weapons anymore. And this was similar to something that God had done once before. You may remember that when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, that he sent them through on dry ground. And then when the Egyptians followed them into the Red Sea, God changed the situation. And uh, in Exodus 14.25, it describes it as him taking the wheels off the chariots and making them drive hard. 
and uh, he made the ground soft, so the chariots of the Egyptians stuck in the mud, and so then they turn around to try to run away, and the sea comes back and drowns them in the case of the Egyptians. Uh, in this particular case, uh, in verse 15, we see that Sisera is forced to abandon his chariot and flee on foot. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, why do you flee on foot when a chariot's faster? Because your chariot's stuck in the mud. And so he's stuck and he runs. And verse 16, all the rest of the Canaanite army is killed. Barak pursued the chariots of the army as far as Herosheth Goyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. And so the third principle for living with the king is don't be afraid to do what the king tells you to do, even when it sounds foolish, even when it sounds impossible. Because what is impossible for men is possible with God. And so then we find out what happened to Sisera, the sole survivor of the Canaanite army, in verses 17 through 22. It says, However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. Now in verse 17, I'd like you to note that Sisera did not flee to the tent of Heber the Kenite. He fled to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. So it says, however, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was common for the wife to sleep in a separate tent from her husband. And those of you wives who have been on camping trips with husbands who snore, uh, sympathize with this 100% and uh, wish you had your own tent. Uh, but uh, in any case, they had separate tents, and um, it was wildly inappropriate for Sisera to flee to Jael's tent. 
because only Heber was supposed to go into Jael's tent. The closest modern equivalent would be, say, a man fleeing to hide in a woman's restroom. And uh, Sisera planned to hide in Jael's tent because he thought, here's a place where people are unlikely to look for me because everybody knows I'm not supposed to be in there. And so if I hide in there, everybody will say, oh, we'll go check in Heber's tent because, you know, Heber is friends with Jabin, king of Canaan. And so maybe Sisera is hiding in his tent. They wouldn't think to look in Jael's tent. And when Jael saw Sisera coming toward her tent, she decided to make the best of a bad situation. Uh, She welcomed him politely, basically because she did not have a choice. It's amazing how cooperative an unarmed person can be in the presence of an armed person. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, uh, one day I had come back to Moody Bible Institute from my practical Christian service assignment. I was working in Awana at a local church, and I parked my car and got out and started walking across the parking lot, and uh, somebody walked by the gate of the parking lot and said something to me, and I couldn't quite hear what he said. He said, excuse me, and he pulled out a gun, pointed it at my head, and said, hold it right there. So I held it right there. He said, give me your money. So I gave him my money. He said, give me your watch. So I gave him my watch. He said, lay down on the ground and count to 100. So I laid down on the ground and I counted to 100. I was very cooperative. Jael was facing a situation where she has someone who's bigger than her, stronger than her, and carrying a sword coming toward her, and she's unarmed. And so, hi, welcome, come on in. She invites him to come into the tent. Although Jael was cooperative, she was not paralyzed by fear. She was a woman of great courage and determination, and she was looking for an opportunity to turn the tables on Sisera. And when the opportunity presented itself, Jael was willing to risk her life to put an end to Sisera's wicked deeds. And so verse 21 says, Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg. We can go to the next slide, by the way. Uh, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And so God used jail and a tent peg and a hammer to deliver the nation of Israel from the Canaanites. And so the fourth principle for living with the king is take what you have and use it for God. Now, you may not think you're big enough or strong enough or smart enough or trained enough or anything else enough to serve God. 
But if you're willing to use what you have, then God is willing to use you. Now, I acknowledge that this is not a very pretty story. And some of the ideas that are presented in it are not popular, especially today. For the record, I'm not suggesting that you pound a tent peg through anyone's head. Although, if uh, you have a mass murderer who escapes from a penitentiary and he is hiding out in your house and he falls asleep and you happen to have a tent peg and a hammer, it may be a strategy you might want to consider. But, in the Old Testament, God will often use physical events to prepare the way for us to understand spiritual realities. So he used things that could be seen in order to help us understand things that cannot be seen. And so, if we look at Ephesians chapter 6, In verse 12, it tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And that, frankly, sounds kind of scary. We have all of these principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness and heavenly places fighting against tiny little me, tiny little you. And the temptation may be to go crawl in a corner and curl up and whimper because of the great threat that we face. But instead, we are exhorted to put on the armor of God so that we can withstand in the evil day, that God has equipped us to stand against the forces of evil in the universe, not in our own strength, but in the strength that he provides. And as we continue to read in Ephesians, we find out that he encourages us to do that through prayer. There's a Norwegian proverb. It says, life is not a dance on roses. And, of course, that means life is not always easy. When hard times come, there are a number of things that we should do. We need to recognize our need and call upon God for help. Men need to look to God for the strength and courage to provide the leadership that their families, churches, and nations need. Whether you're a man or a woman, you need not to be afraid to do what God tells you to do. And you need to take what you have and use it for him. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we live in a sin-cursed fallen world. And things down here aren't always pretty. And beyond that, you know that we are surrounded by hosts of 
wickedness in the heavenly realm, that desire to harm us and to fight against your kingdom. But Lord, we are grateful that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. That all power in heaven and earth is yours, O Lord. That we are in your hand and that no one can take us out of your hand. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit and grant us the strength and courage and determination depending on you to do the things that you want us to do. We commit ourselves into your hands. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may God, who raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, fill each of your hearts with his Holy Spirit so that you love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you go forth to live lives that are pleasing to him, and that you share the good news about him with others who are also in need and need to call upon him for deliverance. Thanks for your fellowship today. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.